This Week in the Function Room, Episode 24, Carbon of Contention. My guest is Dr. Muriel Lynch of the Economic and Social Research Institute here in Ireland. She very carefully guides me, an idiot, on my first tour of the C word, carbon. How much it costs to use it, how much it costs to not use it. It's part of a very interesting chat, including discussion of Lagrange multipliers. I don't know what they are, but these days I'm reveling in rather than shirking from my ignorance, so hook that Lagrangian stuff into my veins. They are named after a French mathematician, Lagrange, and apparently are a way of figuring out the best way to do something, or model something, or run something, or make something when you are trapped between several rocks and hard places, which is useful in the area of trying to figure out how much carbon should cost in a climate-changing world. Now, warning, this episode contains traces of calculus that some listeners may find upsetting. But stick with it, and we eventually get on to lighter topics like making Twixes, or other nougat biscuit equivalents, and then, of course, the end of Habitable Earth. Enjoy. My name is Mirren Lynch, and I'm a senior research officer at the ESRI, um, which means that I do full-time academic research that's policy relevant and my area is energy. A big area to be in. What are you working on right now in the area of energy? So I've got a couple of projects on the go. Um, Some work with a colleague on electricity market design, trying to see what happens when generators need to take into account the cost of starting their units as as well as the cost of running their units and how does that change as, as wind levels and solar levels get really high. Um, And then I've got um, some other projects on the go around kind of historical electricity prices in Ireland and why are Irish electricity prices higher than the European average? What are the different components pushing us up? Um, I've also got some behavioral research on the go around what is it that influences people's attitudes to sustainable energy adaptations? And if we provide people with new information, does that make them more or less likely to, to change our attitudes and what about the type of information like is it environmental ec- information or economic information or information around equity and do those effects persist over time so that's a that's a kind of a, an experimental based um, piece of research and then a few other bits and bobs around things like um retail prices and uh, some stuff around investment and and kind of the optimal power system after like 2030 2035 so lots of strings to my bow i saw you had a brilliant twitter thread about electricity auctions so i followed you and then i saw a tweet and i love it because i have no idea what it means and when i see that it doesn't it doesn't uh scare me or it used to i used to get annoyed because i didn't know whereas now i go right bring it on i know nothing about this i just love i love when somebody just out of the blue will write i'm just an economist standing in front of a policymaker asking them to recognize that under the duality principle the marginal abatement cost of carbon is and that's an asterisk so it must be important is the lagrange multiplier on the carbon constraint and therefore is the optimal carbon tax level. I read that and I just gloried in the sheer depth of my ignorance. But it has <laughs> Lagrange in it, which sounds vaguely like a French mathematician kind of kind of name. So I said my function room spidey sense was on. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, so... Um... My undergrad actually was maths and economics. I, I took both maths and, and economics equally in, in Trinity. Um, so uh, I've always been um, a little bit 
more mathematically bent than than your standard economist, let's say. And your standard economist has has a strong mathematical bent. Let's 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 not um let's not dis economists there. Um, I suppose what it means is we're talking about some concepts in optimization. So optimization is all about finding the best way or the optimal way of doing something, right? And there are optimization theory is huge and it's a subset of what we call decision theory, which is even huger or bigger. Um, so it's about how do we make decisions and there's all sorts of different ways you can model this depending on what you want to take into account. But what I was specifically talking about there is if you just have a function um, of, of a couple of variables, one variable, several variables, it doesn't matter. It can be a single or a multivariable function. And you want to find the optimal point in it. So it could be the maximum or the minimum of that function. Like the standard thing that we do that we're all familiar with or anyone who has any kind of kind of decent math skills is familiar with is you take the first derivative um, and you set it equal to zero. Um, and that means that you'll be at a maximum or a minimum or maybe a saddle point on that function. So just to come back a small bit, this is any graph, which is a curvy, wavy line in any shape that typically changes the value of something will change over maybe it's over time or in response to something and uh, we'll come to carbon in a second but you're in the area of carbon and you're saying we have this huge 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 nebulous topic with lots of data dot 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 there's a curve going through it and that curve has high points and low points those points are important to us when making a decision, how do we find that out? Is that right? Have I characterized that correctly? Exactly, yeah. So if you, you can think of it in terms of, let's say, you're trying to figure out the best way to optim- operate the power system. So you've got a load of, of power plants, and, um, and depending on which power plants you turn on and off when, that's going to determine the cost of meeting the electricity demand. So the, the function that you're looking at is cost, and it's a function of, the output of all of these different power plants. And they include the likes of wind power plants, which have a zero marginal cost. So as like at the time, because they have no fuel cost and no carbon cost at the time, it costs a fuel a wind plant nothing to generate um, versus a gas or a coal plant where you have to take into account their fuel cost and their carbon cost. So you're you're what you're trying to do is you're trying to choose the optimal level of output for all the different units at every point in time. And if this was just a free variable, so like it's just all you're looking at is cost and you want to minimize that function. Well, there's a very obvious solution to that, which is turn every single power plant off um, and the cost is zero and you yep. minimize the cost. You, you can't go negative. Um, but where Lagrange multipliers come in is a lot of the time we're doing what's called constrained optimization. So this is where, okay, you've got the function, you've got the curve, it it follows whatever pattern in space, and you want to find the maximum or the minimum point on that curve, but you have some constraints. So you have to say, we wherever we want the solution to be, it's got to be within this space. So in that case, you can't just take the first derivative of the whole curve and find the local max or the local min or the global max or the global min, because that might be outside of the space set by by your constraints. So if we go back to the electricity example for a second, one of the constraints would be you have to generate enough electricity to meet the demand. Yeah. So that's so the why constraint you, is humanity. 
Well, the, the constraint can be anything. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're, if you're, yeah, in, in terms of like the electricity market, the constraint is humanity. We, we need, we need a certain amount of power, but this shows up everywhere. So it could be that you're trying to, you've got a sweet, you've got a sweet factory and you can make toffee or you can make nougat um, and you're trying to maximize your profits. Um, so if all you want to do is maximize your profits, then you're obviously just going to make 100% toffee or 100% nougat, depending on which one gets you a higher profit in and of itself. However, if you also have like, you only have a certain amount of sugar and you have this kind of a machine for toffee and this kind of a machine for nougat, um, and they kind of constrain how much toffee and how much nougat you can make. Um, and then there's a demand curve for toffee and there's a demand curve for nougat. All of these things put constraints and the really, we have mathematical techniques for solving these constrained optimization problems. It's obviously not as simple as just taking the first derivative of the original function, whether it's a profit function you want to maximize or a cost function you want to minimize or a carbon function you want to minimize. And just interrupt, uh, the, when you say first derivative, uh, for anybody who has maybe gone maybe as far as fifth year in school, your delta y over delta x, the slope of the curve you know, if I'm if I'm going at this speed, the derivative is uh, acceleration, isn't that right? Uh, you know, it's it's yeah, it's finding how fast a thing is changing. It's the rate of point. change of the of the of the function, yeah. So, yeah. like, as kind of how fast does how fast do your profits go up as a function of the amount of nougat you make, or yeah. how fast do your costs go up as a function of the amount of gas generator you've turned on or whatever. And and in a very simple system, you'd know you're at a maximum or a minimum because the, the slope of the tangent to the curve at that time is zero. Is so that's how we used to know. How does it, how do we know the parabolas reached the top or reached the bottom? Delta Y yeah. over delta X is zero. Yeah, because a maximum is going to look like this. So if you put a tangent against that point, it's going to be flat, which means its slope is zero. And a minimum is going to look like like this. So yeah. if you put a tangent there, that's going to be flat. So that's okay. why we can we can solve it that way. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt that bit. I just wanted to make sure I was in, on the right page there. So complex system constrained mm-hmm. by demand, uh, constrained by how much people, how much power people want at any given time. Yeah. Constrained by the cost itself changing over time, yeah. based on demand or politics or anything like that, and you're. Yeah. You're the economist using maths to figure out in this complex system something to do with carbon. So within this uh, complicated system uh, where power, ultimately it comes down to generating energy to run an economy. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of different sources. But the big thing everybody's talking about and what you mentioned in your tweet is carbon and carbon tax. Tell me about carbon as a constraint and why that matters when you're looking at this giant system where we get our power from lots of different sources. Right, so so let's think about if we want to generate enough power, <clears throat> but with this constraint that we have to meet the demand, then that's fair enough. But what if we also want to have a constraint on the amount of carbon that we emit, okay? so. There's a number of ways you can do this in practice. Like one is you can, the government can just regulate and the government can just say, 
we're going to ban this particular type of fossil fuel, or we're going to subsidize the heck out of wind power, or we're going to ban people using electricity between five and seven o'clock, which is when the demand goes high. And that means we kind of turn on the most expensive and the dirtiest power plants. But one of the things you can do is you can just include a constraint on carbon. So we've already constrained our function to say we want to minimize the cost of generating, but we want to generate enough to meet the demand. And you can introduce a second constraint saying, and we don't want the total amount of carbon to go above this number, or we don't want the carbon concentration of the system at any point in time to go above that number, whatever. And the thing about these constraints is when you set up this model where you're maximizing or minimizing the function, but you also have constraints, we have mathematical techniques to do that. Now, you, you could do it with pen and paper, but in practice, you do it using a computer because there's, there can be millions of equations here. Um, but in theory, you can do it with pen and paper. But the really nice thing is the way we solve them is by essentially you take each of the constraints and you weight them by what we call a Lagrange multiplier. And it's usually um, signified by lambda. And the, the French mathematician Lagrange was, was involved in sorting this out. And then once you have all of those constraints weighted by these lambdas, you kind of bundle them in with your original function and you minimize the entire system of equations together. Now, the, what that does is it gets you to the optimal solution taking into account the constraints. And you can prove that it is the optimal solution. You can prove that there's no better way of meeting your constraints in this way. But you also get this really nice extra result for free. And that nice extra result is that you get a level of the Lagrange multipliers themselves. So you have this variable for every single constraint you have, you have this variable. And what that constraint tells you is the sensitivity of your original function to the constraint. So what I'm saying is, if you're, if we go back to our sweet factory example, and we're saying, I want to maximize my profits by deciding how much nougat and how much toffee to produce. Um, you have, you have a Lagrange multiplier on the constraint that represents the capacity of your toffee making machine and the constraint that represents the capacity of your nougat making machine. And let's say you've solved your, your problem and it says you should make 200 bags of toffee and 150 bags of nougat. But it also says the, the Lagrange multiplier in your toffee constraint is 40. So what that, that is telling us is if we were to make an infinitesimal change in the capacity of your toffee machine. So if you were able to produce a little bit more toffee, your profits would go up by 40. Um, and there's a similar constraint on everything else. So what that tells you is how much is this constraint costing us? So if we think back to electricity, we've got that demand constraint that we talked about. And there's going to be a Lagrange multiplier on that. And let's say it's 140 euro. What that tells us is if you were to make an infinitesimal change to demand right now, if we were able to reduce our demand right now by one megawatt, we would save 140 euro. Um, and so what we say is the price of electricity right now is 140 euro. And that's how we set prices, because we know that that is the value to society. That is the fact that our demand is where it is, is costing us 140 euro. So it makes sense that the demand pays 140 euro. And you can do the exact same thing with carbon. So in figuring out what we want the carbon emissions to be, we ask the climate scientists. That's not an economic question. The climate scientists tell us, here's where we need our emissions to get to. 
But once the climate scientists have given us that piece of information, we can use that to construct this carbon constraint and it's going to spit out a Lagrange multiplier. So it's going to tell us that the impact of this carbon constraint on our objective function is 80 euro per ton, let's say. And what that tells us is that the price of carbon is 80 euro per ton. This is the impact of the carbon constraint on the total costs. So that's why the Lagrange multiplier is the optimal carbon price, because if we were to actually do whatever we need to do to get carbon down by one unit, it would cost us 80 euro. So it all comes out in the wash. Very neat. Uh, how do you decide at the start, though, when you look at uh, a carbon market? And I hope we'll get to what a carbon market is yeah. a little bit later. But sticking with Lagrange multipliers, even saying them makes me feel smarter. How do you decide your initial? Is it trial and error where you work out within a system of uh, generating power from gas and wind and solar and coal and oil and biofuels or whatever how do you work out what that you mentioned a weighting what it, how do you decide who, how much weight to attach to each one so the the lagrange multipliers go in as a function they just go in as a lambda you don't know what it is but then the solution that it spits out gives you an optimal value for the lambdas as well as an optimal value for everything else so what goes in is your parameters so things like i know what the demand is right now I know how much coal costs, I know how much gas costs, I know how much carbon costs, and I know how efficient all of my power plants are, and I know how much wind I expect at each hour. So that's everything that goes in. And you say, these are all of the costs that you face, um, and we know that we expect the demand to be this much at each hour. So go ahead and tell me the best way to dispatch all of my power plants in order to meet my demand, and also respecting my carbon constraint. And then what comes out the other side is a value okay. lambdas. So they go they go in as, as variables, but they come out as solved variables. Okay, so you come out with a lambda for carbon yeah. out of the solution, which out says solution. this in a, a power system of a country, let's call it Ireland, uh, given all the things we know about Ireland, how windy it is, how much uh, gas we get piped in, what power plants we have already here's here's the carboniness of it here's how here you know here's here's how sensitive it is carbon wise yeah and that's the price of carbon but yeah. so so that that's like okay this is the cost of carbon and by the way just so we're clear and sorry if this must be quite stupid is is it carbon the element or is it carbon dioxide or is it carbon monoxide when we talk about carbon are we talking about c with the six and the you know and the med in the periodic table the elements and we talk about tons is are we talking about atoms here just so i'm clear yeah so so when we're pricing these when we're pricing carbon we price it in euro per ton um yeah. and and it tends to be carbon but yeah. you can you can get from carbon to carbon dioxide or even to carbon dioxide equivalent very easily and then it's just a, it's okay. just a different price Okay, so so that's you saying, look, uh, the cold numbers spit out this price of carbon. This is what it should be for a given thing. And presumably that means then carbon costs are different in Ireland than in another country. Is that right? 
So yeah, so that's that's a really good question. So obviously the damage to the atmosphere from a, a ton of carbon is the exact same wherever it originates from. So the climate costs are the same, but what differs is how easily um, we can reduce carbon. So some countries can reduce carbon emissions easier than others and cheaper than others, and some sectors can reduce carbon emission easier than others and cheaper than others. So in terms of what's the optimal price, in, in many ways, the optimal price is set internationally in that we know how much a carbon, a ton of carbon damages yeah. the atmosphere. Um, but then if in an ideal world, we had a global carbon constraint that everybody was bought into, then that would just give us a global carbon price. And that means that all over the world, anyone who can um, reduce carbon for cheaper than that price is going to do it, right? They have an incentive to do it. If you have to pay 90 euro to emit a ton of carbon and you can avoid that ton of carbon for 50 euro, then of course you're going to avoid the ton of carbon if you save 40. And you, and you can avoid it. Uh, because you're in a windy or a sunny place, for example. Yeah, there's yeah. loads of ways you can avoid it. You can yeah. avoid it by reducing your demand, or you can avoid it by switching technology, or you can avoid it by by producing clean energy. Um, but the point is, you can figure out the best way to avoid it based on your personal circumstances, based on how much you need to use carbon or how much you want to do something that produces carbon, because no one just wants some carbon, right? Like there's, there's no one who's just like, woohoo, there's an extra ton of carbon in the atmosphere and get some utility from that. But it's also based on how easily you can switch to a non-carbon alternative. Okay. So by, by putting everything through a price, that means that you're able to figure out the best way of doing it without anyone needing to regulate anything, without anyone needing to subsidize anything. It all comes out of the wash. But of course, in practice, there are massive issues to doing this. So like one of them is the fact that we don't have international buy-in. We don't have a global mar carbon market. The closest we have to it in some ways is the European ETS system, which is a European um, agreement around carbon pricing within Europe only and for certain sectors only. So for example, power, power generation, electricity generation, if you, if you want to emit a ton of carbon in the electricity generation sector, you have to go and buy a permit off the European carbon market. However, for heating your own home with your gas boiler, you're going to emit some carbon that way, and that comes under a carbon tax system. And that tax is sent by, set by the Irish government. So one is a price set by Europe, the other is a tax set by the Irish government. Now, obviously, because we were saying a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon and does the same damage, in an ideal world, those would be equal. But in practice, they're not. So there are all sorts of hiccups and idiosyncrasies. And then there's also the fact that, according to current modelling, if we're going to meet the very stringent targets we've set ourselves, and if we're going to um, ask the agricultural sector to reduce their emissions by 25%, that means all the other sectors have to do a lot more than 25%. So that means that the price of carbon needs to be really, really, really high. Like we're talking into the thousands of euro or over a thousand euro. But the carbon tax right now is just under 50 euro. Um, and we have plans for it to get to 100 euro by 2030, but we've no plans to go beyond that. So if we know that economically we need a carbon price of over a thousand euro, and in practice we have a carbon price of less than a hundred euro, then you're gonna to have to do something to make up that difference. Now, we are doing things to make up that difference. We're doing things like subsidizing wind energy. We're doing things like subsidizing electric cars. Um, so we're doing things to do heavy lifting on top of what our current carbon tax is doing. But at least mathematically, if you had all of the information available and if everyone was bought in, you could do it just via a carbon tax. 
but you'd have to be happy to let the carbon tax take on whatever number it mathematically needs to take on in order to meet the targets that the climate scientists are telling us we want to meet. So uh, just to um, come back on that, so climate scientists say we need carbon to be this level. So Mm -hmm. that's a chunk of carbon that has to be removed. And I'm trying to just struggling with the idea that you've got a global price, which is the globe's need to cut carbon and then a local cost because, uh, you know, different constraints apply in different countries. What happens if it's going to cost me more than the global price? Like I have no incentive to cut carbon then. What happens in that case? Right. So So then in that case, you're going to go ahead and emit some carbon. So if if the target is zero, which it is eventually. Um, But assuming that we're in a place right now where we want to cut but not eliminate carbon emissions, then that means that someone's going to emit some carbon, right? Now, the people for whom it would cost them more to cut the carbon emissions than to just buy a carbon permit, they have an incentive, as you said, to emit some carbon. And that's okay, because we've decided that we can emit some carbon. And Given that we want to emit some carbon, we want to make sure that the people emitting it are the people who most have to emit it, the people who have the greatest need, the people who can't switch, the people who don't have alternatives. Um, so that means that, yeah, anyone who's, who's kind of cost of, of abating carbon or the cost of not using carbon is less than the carbon price are going to abate their carbon. And anyone whose cost of abating carbon is greater than the carbon price are going to emit their carbon. And then the point is, as the carbon price gets higher and higher and higher and higher and higher over time, you get more and more people switching from the emitting category to the abating category. Um, and hopefully the idea is that as technology improves, the cost of abatement comes down as well. So when you use a carbon price, it means that the abatement happens in the sectors that are best able to afford it. Um, and the emissions continue in the sectors that are least able to afford abatement. And then as the price goes up over time and technology gets better over time, you're continuing to abate, but you're doing it in the most efficient way, in the most economic way. You're concentrating the carbon emissions where they're most needed, if you know what I mean, and getting them out of the sectors where they're least needed. Uh, It sounds like a message that's not really getting across to the different sectors because... Hence my tweet, man. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Um, Because they're the extent to which there's solidarity even within a country across who, you know, like, because we're, we're familiar with tax. You pay, the more you earn, the more you pay in tax, uh, not necessarily as a proportion, but as an amount in, in real, in real terms, how much you pay in, in Euro, in theory, anyway, until you get to a certain point and then you seem to pay no tax. I don't know how that works, but, but the idea of carbon tax at the moment, the messaging around it, is either there's a perception that it's seen as a tax on consumption and everybody consumes and therefore it's not a progressive tax so either a message isn't there or the system is flawed about how we pay for our emissions is that right fair? so yeah sure so um carbon taxation is regressive so um because 
uh, lower income households spend a greater proportion of their income on carbon and carbon emitting goods and energy. That means that if you tax carbon, then they're going to spend a greater proportion of their income on carbon taxation. That's all true. Um, now, there's a number of things you can do with it. The first thing is to note that in our, in our original model, we said we had a constraint on demand and we had a straight constraint on carbon. What we didn't have was a distributional constraint. You could go back to your model and introduce a new constraint that says, I want to meet the demand and I want to reduce carbon and I want to make sure that richer households pay the most for carbon. So you could do it that way. Um, and then you're going to reach a new optimal solution which meets your carbon targets, but at a greater cost, because obviously every time you introduce a new constraint, you're, you're, you're narrowing your options, which means whatever solution you, you arrive at will be worse than, than the one without that constraint. Um, an alternative way of doing it is you go ahead, you figure out the optimal price of carbon, but then you use the revenues, maybe from the carbon taxation or maybe just government revenues in general, to recycle through the tax and welfare system to make sure that lower income families are better off. And there's been a lot of research done on this. Any research that's been produced in Ireland on carbon taxation that I'm aware of always included a distribution analysis and an analysis of how do you best recycle this stuff. Now, interestingly, it seems that there is a preference amongst voters and amongst policymakers to use carbon taxation revenues to do things like subsidized electric cars or subsidized solar panels or whatever, because there's this idea that we need to use the revenues from carbon to offset carbon. And um, that probably is also regressive because the kind of family that can buy a solar panel or an electric car, even with a grant, is a rich family. So you're raising revenues that disproportionately hit poor households and you're recycling them through measures that disproportionately benefit high income households. So if your concern is distribution, you wouldn't want to do that. If your concern is distribution, what you'd want to do is use the revenues to increase child benefit, to increase um, to reduce PRSI thresholds, to increase working family payment, pensions, all that kind of thing. That seems to be a harder sell politically. Um, so we do recycle some of the carbon taxation revenues through things like fuel allowance and all of that kind of thing. But we also use some of the carbon taxation revenues to subsidize grants and stuff like that. Is that uh, does your behavioral analysis kind of come into that kind of thing where uh, there's some sort of weird moral uh, moral hazard thing or something where, well, I've paid some carbon tax. So I should get a reward for my virtuous uh, purchases of electric cars and solar, whereas look at them, should they they burned a lot of they burned a lot of oil, paid some extra tax, and now they're getting free money as a result. Like, is there is there a, a psychology involved in that? Do you think? I think one hundred percent there is. Yeah, I mean, not everyone is as obsessed with optimal solutions as I am, um, and not everyone is as is as obsessed with the idea that if we have perfect information and we set up the right model, everything will be fine. Um, most people kind of seem to see taxation as a sort of a quid pro quo, like um, when it comes to income taxation, for example, people don't really seem to conceptualize income taxation as a way of raising revenues to provide public services. They more see income taxation as, um, as, as a kind of a redistributional thing, but they don't seem to think it has a real link with how much you work. Um, it, it's kind of assumed that your income kind of comes out of the ether as opposed to your income comes as a result of you going out and working. Um, and I think it's probably similar with carbon taxation. People don't seem to believe that it has any real link with impacts on the planet. And it seems to be more about like 
people talk about carrot and stick a lot, whereas actually it's not so much a stick versus a carrot. It's just there's a cost to emitting carbon. Like we, we can't get away from that cost. The only choice we have is who bears that cost. So by putting a price on carbon, the person who emits the carbon bears the cost. By not putting a price on carbon, future generations bear the cost. Or if we do some other way of getting our emissions down, someone else bears the cost, but we don't know who it is. Um, can it be solved by messaging? I don't know. Like, I would love if we trialed something like, instead of, like, you, you had your carbon tax, you raise your carbon tax revenues, and then instead of just recycling it through, like, you, you increase the fuel allowance or something, everyone gets, like, a carbon credit on their payslip or something. So instead of kind of this month, your, your, your taxation goes down a little bit. Next month, your taxation is the exact same, but you also get a, a credit on your payslip saying, here's your carbon credit, here's your carbon taxation being recycled back to you. Would that increase the, would that help sell carbon taxes a bit more? I don't know. Um, but I think it's probably worth trialing at least, maybe doing an experiment on it or something. Uh, is there such a thing as, uh, a Lagrange multiplier for political sensitivity and, uh, you know, capriciousness of and the election cycle and behaviour. Like, do you plug that in? Can you quantify <laughs> attitude in in an equation to spit out uh, a price of carbon? So, in theory, you can you can include anything. In in theory, you can include any constraint you want, um, and it will have a Lagrange multiplier on it. Um, in practice, I guess you'd have to ask how do you parameterize that? So you can include an equation that represents um, the, I don't know, like maybe maybe policymakers have a certain amount of um, political capital available to them. Like, so they have like a budget of political yeah. capital and they have to decide where to spend it. And they're choosing policies and every policy takes a certain amount of political capital. Um, you, yeah, you could set up that model and you could hit run. Um, and there'd be a, a Lagrange multiplier associated with all of these constraints. And it would tell you, um, here's how much this policy would cost you politically versus this policy. Therefore, you should do this one versus that one. I suppose the real question is, how do you parameterize those equations? Um, I don't I don't know. I don't know how you would gather the data to figure out how costly these things would be politically. But if you could parameterize them, then, yeah, you could do that. And I think um, there are so anytime you have a trade off, it's. It's, it's an optimization problem straight away. Um, and I think we can apply optimization in far more domains than we currently do, way, way more domains. Um, but there are limits because ultimately you need to get whatever you're trying to consider in English into maths. And that's not always possible. Uh, the reason I first, uh, the reason we're having this conversation about optimization is uh, your, your tweet about it. And of course, social media is, a terrible place for optimization is it because it is so binary and zero sum game is there is there a discussion platform where you can optimize opinion <laughs> taking in inputs from different people like like because we are obsessed with debate but it's so i want to win and i need to own you in this debate but this thing is so complex the constraints you talk about in a mathematical sense are real and people's views and opinions are real and you know the, the the blended way forward is often the sum total of different opinions including people you mightn't actually like but might have a good point do you in your business 
how do you uh, how do you take on board all the different opinions? Wow, that's really interesting. Like, because yeah, there are costs and benefits to social media engagement. So if you could parameterize the costs and the benefits, you could come up with an optimal um, level and type of social media engagement. Um, I suppose, yeah, leaving that aside to your broader question, um, I'd say a number of things. First of all, I think one of the things that people stumble over with economics is a lot of people don't understand the difference between a positive and a normative question. Um, and this is what you're, you're taught in Econ 101. Um, so the difference is one considers what should we do and the other considers what or one considers what should happen and the other considers what will happen, let's say. And an awful lot of the time, an economist is just telling you, here's what will happen. Um, and people interpret it as here's what should happen or here's what shouldn't happen. So, you know, an example I like to give is you can give the statement um, if we don't raise the pension age, we will have to increase um, PRSI significantly. Now, that's just a statement of fact. But people tend to hear it as we should increase the pension age. And it's like, I haven't said anything about what we should do. I'm just saying, here's what will happen. So a lot of the time when economists talk about things like carbon pricing and carbon taxation and, and optimization and stuff, people can kind of hear this as we shouldn't decarbonize or like we, we should just let the market sort it all out. And the thing is, like, I'm, I'm a realist, you know, like this will only ever work in a theoretical world that doesn't actually exist. Economists know that markets don't always work. That's why we exist as a discipline. If markets didn't work, there'd be no need, for, or if markets always worked, there'd be no need for us. The reason we exist is because of market failures and how we fix them. Um, but another thing that I think is kind of weird is that there are a lot of practitioners who use optimization, as in they use the... The, the software to minimize a function subject to these constraints, but they're either unaware of or they, they ignore Lagrange multipliers. So, and that's kind of what prompted my tweet. Like people who are like, well, let's just keep coming, dreaming up new sets of policies and milling them through our model to see what it does to carbon. But what they don't seem to grasp is that every one of those policies that they pop into their model has a Lagrange multiplier associated with them. You can study those Lagrange multipliers and you can see, okay, what's the impact of each of these policies? How costly are they according to the Lagrange multiplier? So I feel like there are lots of practitioners. We have this common language available to us. We can communicate through Lagrange multipliers, which is the same as marginal abatement costs. And for some reason, we don't. We get stuck in this ideological area of, um, this policy is better than that policy because my cousin um, can't get to school without using her car and therefore we should, you know, do something about school transport. And I'm like, or we could we could put your school transport um, policy into our model and see what the Lagrange multiplier is. And that will tell us for sure, is this policy better than that policy? Um, so I think... Social media is generally not the place to talk about Lagrange multipliers, even though ironically that's what kicked <laughs> off this conversation. But I do think I would love to see a kind of a broader discussion about that in the energy modeling community in Ireland. I think that would be super helpful. Because we are obsessed with anecdote. anecdote yeah. Because, you know, we talk, we want stories. And uh, I suppose it's about telling the story of the Lagrange multiplier in a... <laughs> in a fun and engaging way that's 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 where we want to get to <laughs> wow well if you've any ideas on that let me know because i think they're so cool i love yeah. multipliers they're so powerful but but for some reason 
for some unknown reason, people tend not to talk about them very much. There wasn't any like Irish fellow who came up with them as well that we can just put in an O'Malley multiplier as well, just to uh, to bring the to bring the story home. Before we go, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about a slight change of subject are when people, ordinary people's exposure to carbon trading and credits and offset is. A, it might be seen through a specific example, maybe like, you know, you're booking a flight and do you want to pay four euro to offset this? Uh, yesterday, today is, um, we're recording this on uh, Thursday the 8th. Yesterday, we found out, surprise, surprise, that FIFA's, you know, carbon neutral World Cup was a load of, you know, rubbish. And we didn't, I, I don't know why anyone expected it could possibly be carbon neutral. Um what goes on with carbon trading? I remember hearing about carbon trading 20 years ago. It already felt like selling indulgences in the latter day, in, just before the Reformation, you know, a, a license to, again, I've given out about morals, but bring it in now for glib sense, a license to sin. Mm. And, you know, and then we talk about uh, what kind of carbon offsetting capability is, is, is in our land it all feels like creative accounting and look i'm all i'm all for i'm all for writing off as much as possible against tax but at the moment carbon trading and uh offsetting and credits feels like a load of bollocks <laughs> if you know what i mean like that's what yeah. it feel, to me an idiot um right. how wrong am i in that so I think, again, you have to distinguish between what happens in theory and what happens in practice. So in theory, it's possible to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, you can do it by planting a tree um, or you can do it by um, burning something like biomass in a power plant and capturing the carbon and storing the carbon. Or you can do it by running a big machine that actually sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. And there's a, there's a cost associated with all those things, right? There's a cost associated with growing trees. There's a cost associated with sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, in, if we knew the costs associated with all those things with, with perfect foresight, we could pop them all into our model um, and we would get Lagrange multipliers associated with the various constraints. And we would find an optimal level of tree planting and an optimal level of carbon capture and storage and an optimal level of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Maybe it would be zero or maybe it wouldn't. So in theory, these are ways of getting rid of carbon. And if there's like, let's say that the cost of, sucking the carbon out of an atmosphere with one of these machines is 250 euro per ton. If you want to emit carbon for greater than 250 euro per ton, then you're going to buy one of these machines as well and you're going to offset your own emissions or you're going to pay someone else to do it. In practice, you have the issues around information. So every market, this is not specific to carbon markets, every single market in the world assumes perfect information. But in practice, we know that we don't have perfect information. We almost always have information asymmetries. Often the consumer knows more than the producer, the producer knows more than the consumer, and this all leads to suboptimal solutions. And then there's also the existence of people who, it's not just a lack of information, people know, but they're lying. So the reason that the information isn't um, accurate is because people aren't being told what's true. So what I would say is, I don't think there's any particular reason why a carbon market would be more susceptible to these market failures than any other market. But we also need to accept that these market failures exist and we can't expect um, we can't expect everyone to know everything. We can't expect everyone to tell us everything. So in theory, 
are there instances where it would be better for like society as a whole, for a particular person or sector or industry to produce carbon and offset it? Yeah, such a such a such a situation could exist. In practices that happen, I'd say right now, no, because carbon prices are so low that like it's always going to be cheaper. Like it's simply not the case that you can offset carbon at the kind of carbon prices we have right now. Carbon prices would need to be an awful lot higher for proper carbon offsetting to prove economic. So when something someone like FIFA says we offset our carbon, it's like, are you having a laugh? I was, no, you didn't. I mean, like it, it would have been cheaper for you to just not emit the carbon in the first place than to actually buy all the carbon permits required to offset your carbon. So this is where we get into the, the differentiation between should we have a carbon market at all or should we have a carbon market but with a higher price than we have right now? Um, I fall into the latter category. I think carbon carbon pricing is, is good. Um, but we need to accept that either carbon prices need to be higher than they are right now, or we need to be happy to do a lot, an awful lot of other stuff as well as car- pricing carbon. Right now, the plan is to do that, but we're not exactly proceeding at the kind of level we need to to meet our targets, unfortunately. And would it be correct to say that carbon as a market is just like any other market, but there's some weird things first of all it's young it's in a boom but prices aren't going up as in it's in an information it's in a there's a buzz about it like everybody's talking about it but what actually happens doesn't track the amount of talk there's going on and also it's couched in um a you know do the right thing um what's the word backdrop which doesn't necessarily always accompany the gold market or a cloth market or copper or you know pork barrel or whatever like it's it's uh it's a funny kind of market because this weird emotion associated with it like we have to do the right thing let's get involved yeah Uh, like in some ways it sells hopes and dreams yeah you could say that like it's we talk about the carbon market because we're used to kind of selling goods like gold or diamonds or coffee cups or whatever um but actually like we said earlier, no one wants a ton of carbon. What people want is the right to emit a ton of carbon. So it's not really a carbon market. It's a carbon permit market. So you're buying permits to do something. Um, but the reason the market exists in the first place is because we don't want to do this thing. So it feels weird. There's There, there aren't many other markets like that where like we're, we're trading the right to do something that we don't want to do. <laughs> um, but I think it helps here to distinguish between trajectories. Like if we decided that we want our emissions to go to zero tomorrow, we'd all die. Like it's that simple. Like there's no way we can cut our emissions to zero tomorrow without loads of people dying. So we we know that there's an optimal carbon tra- trajectory and we know that it's not to get to zero tomorrow. And what that means is that we're going to have a positive amount of carbon emissions between now and when we get to net zero, which is, 2050, hopefully. Will we do it? I don't know. But that means that you're going to have a non-negative price associated with carbon. So yeah, is there a psychological hurdle to clear there? I'm sure there is. And I'd love to see some research on it. Um, but in general, people tend not to, to knock around in carbon markets. It tends to be fossil fuel companies and generation companies and cement companies and stuff like that. And I think we can probably trust them to be a little bit more hard-nosed and not so driven by psychology. Um, but I don't know. We should do some research on this probably. And speaking of what we should do or what's happening next, uh, 
what do you see happening in the next five years in terms of how we think about carbon or the right to emit it as a as a as a, a good as in a, a, an object rather than a, a good or bad thing um what, what's next do you think What's next? Wow. So the EPA report came out recently showing that we're not on track for our 2030 targets at all. Um, and I was really forcibly um, exposed to the fact that I live in a bit of a bubble because myself and my colleagues have been talking for ages about how we're not on track to meet our targets. And the fact that it came as such a surprise to everyone else made me go, wow. And um, turns out people do care about this, but don't know. Will that kind of thing cause a shift in public opinion in the short term as regards things like carbon pricing? I'm not sure. Um, I think these things might be a little bit complex for um, for kind of the general public to grasp. But will it cause a shift in general amenability toward climate policies? Yeah, maybe. But opinion polling still shows that this is not a priority issue for anyone. It's like it's super low in terms of people's priorities. Everyone knows that it's things like health and housing. Um, that are the top of people's priority lists. And I would expect that to remain the case for the next five years. So I wouldn't hold out too much hope for big shifts in how people conceptualize carbon and carbon pricing. Um, but I've been wrong before, and uh, I'd love to be wrong about that. And finally, finally, what is, what do you think we, how do we feel about shocks? Like, you know, if, if there's an oil shock, we've, we're, we're, we're used to oil shocks and the price of oil going up and it's it dictated by external events, uh, be it war, usually war, um, sometimes weather events. But there's been no weather big enough to shift us hugely um, in terms of carbon. And because, you, you know, you sometimes have these worrisome conversations with people who say, like I'm talking to client scientists and it's going to get real bad real soon. And, you know, it's going to get non-linear. <laughs> like think there'll be cliffs. Mm. What happens in two equations like the one you deal with in, uh, in situations where there is no trajectory? Our trajectory is the curve is no longer curvy. It's pointy and jagged. Yeah, so... Yeah, there are an awful lot of non-linearities in these models. Um, now, kind of when you get points and jaggedness, you can kind of fiddle around with your with your equations to kind of approximate that piece piecewise or something like that. Um, but if the if the curve is shooting off to infinity because it's kind of once we get past this this point, the the costs of carbon emissions just become infinite. Then that means that at that point, the price of carbon will also become infinite. Um, and that's the point at which emissions have to get to zero, right? So there are certainly models you can run, and colleagues here in the Institute have run them, and colleagues in Cork have run them, that show like eye-wateringly high carbon prices. And that just reflects the fact that there is a massive cost to the amount of carbon we're emitting right now. Um, and uh, I, I don't think those kind of carbon prices will ever be politically acceptable. Um, but... I think the, the problem with climate science is if and when we get a shock, it will be too late. Um, like if the climate gets so bad that it's, you know, people are really waking up to the fact we have to do something. Unfortunately, what they're waking up to is the fact that we had to do something 30 years ago, 50 years ago. So this is why this is such an important 
but such a challenging area at the same time it doesn't often keep me up at night but it does sometimes i'm not gonna lie right okay and on that happy note on that happy note that was dr Murin lynch there of the economic and social research institute Sorry for the lateness of this episode. I was constrained by other work in the last couple of weeks and the Lambda for this podcast came out lower than some other things. But thanks to Dr. Lynch, now that I know what happened, I can optimise a bit better. See you next time. And in the meantime, please do share uh, the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Colm O'Regan or the podcast itself at Function Room Pod. Enjoy all feedback. Welcome. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.